Good morning, Valley Ranch. It's always good to be home, and uh, last time when I preached, I made a joke about John hibernating in the baptistry. That's how he stays so youthful. But you know, I guess ice baths are the new things these days, so... As Amy stated earlier, my family and I, we live and do ministry in Indonesia. I'm on staff there at a university teaching interreligious studies and peacemaking. My students come from many different faiths. I have Muslim leaders and activists as students. I have Protestant pastors, Catholic sisters, and Catholic priests, among others. My wife, Brooke, who is a teacher, she serves at the children's school keeps it running, and in addition to our work in education, we offer ministry to university students and young adults. And when we're not busy enough on our own island, we're usually on other islands working with churches in the areas of theological education and renewable energy. There's a whole lot more that God is doing in Indonesia, and if you're still around after the service before Uh, Maybe we split off into the Valley Trip discussion or maybe after Grow Groups. I'd love to talk to you more about how you can get involved or maybe sign up for our newsletter. I prayed that technology would work this morning, but as we learned last week, not all our prayers are heard, and so my little clickers, unfortunately, not. It's failing me. If anyone's counting, this is my third time to VRBC this year. Normally, my family comes back once every two or three years, so that's usually how long you have to do without putting up with me. February, I came to meet with university uh, partners of my faculty in Indonesia. In June, the whole family came back for our normal two to three year uh, trip. But this trip is to meet with Baylor to discuss growing our partnership. Baylor has been doing some things in Indonesia. I serve as faculty through Baylor in Indonesia. Baylor is sending a mission trip next year, and we're looking at Baylor Indonesia, a study abroad program, two years from now. And we're looking at doing some new and cool things as well. And so I hope in the coming months that maybe I'll be back and I'll share more about that. Uh, And for you that are students, and maybe for you that have students at Baylor right now, there might be some really cool opportunities for you to get involved. Now, before returning to Indonesia this summer, I had told Amy that I would be back this Sunday and could preach. Now, she mentioned at that time, VRBC would be in a sermon series on Abraham. And so I was really excited to speak about Abraham. Why? Because in the Muslim-majority country that I live in, they also see Ibrahim as an important part of their faith and as a spiritual father as well. And so I've studied the Jewish text, I've studied the the Islamic myths and legends surrounding Abraham, and I felt I had something to say. Unfortunately for me, the the dates were messed up. Unfortunately for me, I'll miss babes next week. (laughs) But probably fortunate for you, Arthur preached that sermon last month. So instead of wrapping up our sermon series on Abraham today, we'll conclude our series on prayer. Now, what do you do when you're a guest preacher? and you're concluding a sermon series? Well, all week long in your hotel room as you're traveling through Indonesia, you watch the sermon series. Now, you usually watch the series to see what's been said and what hasn't been said, 
but mostly as a preacher, you watch it to see which illustrations have been used. Mostly you just don't want to reuse the sermon's illustrations. And speaking of illustrations, a few weeks ago to start our series, Amy used one that still haunts me to this day. She was talking about authentic prayer and using Psalm 139 and and this idea that through prayer we ask God to show us who we are, but also to show us who he is. And here's where the illustration comes in. Like doctors, poor Dr. Lacey, God has seen it all. He's seen it all before, and so there's no need for us to hide anything. Now, two weeks ago, Dr. Hummel shared about Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, how he was foreshadowing his suffering and his eventual crucifixion. We read of his pain, his anguish, and his isolation, and we watched how as Jesus prayed, he became more and more resolute in his trust, finally declaring that God's will be done. And last week, we heard John speak about persistence in prayer and praying for what we need, food on the table, and maybe also for things that we think we need or just really want, like to win that Powerball or for hair to grow from our head again. But we heard how God flips that around and gives us what we actually need, his presence, the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to have to steal one of John's illustrations. But no, it has nothing to do with wearing women's clothing. (laughs) And if you're confused by that and you missed the sermon, please go home and watch it. It's a good one. The Apostle Paul, far holier than I, would write to people, and he would tell them that he remembers them in prayers always. John, I remember you every time my wife's running clothes end up in my pile of laundry. (laughs) The theme for this series has been hidden riches, with the idea that through prayer, we can tap into the hidden riches that God has for us. Not necessarily in terms of health and wealth, but in terms of growing in trust and faithfulness in his presence, and as we'll learn today, in obedience. Our text of today comes from Isaiah chapter 6. In a minute, it will be on the screen. You have it on your scripture sheets before you, but if you actually have a Bible, you may want to open it up. There's probably a Bible in front of you. You may want to open up to Isaiah. Before we get to chapter 6, I want to briefly set the context. So if you open your Bibles to Isaiah, you'll see in the first chapter the place, Judah and Jerusalem, and the time during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now we often have this thought in our head that the 12 tribes of Israel was one unified nation. But unfortunately, just like today, the land was more often than not fractured and splintered. We learn from the book of Judges that the 12 tribes warred among themselves. But only during the reign of Saul would the northern 10 tribes be united. And then only during the reigns of David and Solomon would all 12 tribes of God's people 
be united as one nation. After Solomon, the kingdom would again split into two, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Now from this introduction, we know Isaiah preached to Judah in the south. By mentioning which kings ruled, we know when Isaiah lived and prophesied in the 8th century B.C. And it is this time that the writings that make up the Bible began to change. Before, it was mostly narrative. When it talked about the prophets, it talked about more about what the prophets did, as we see in the case of Moses, Samuel, or Elijah. But in the 8th century, things changed. Now we have the revealed prophecies themselves. The very words that were spoken to these prophets by God, and the words in turn the prophets spoke to us, God's people. Now, the 8th century is not a happy time in the history for the peoples of Israel and Judah. Enemies have arisen up all around them, and God is ready to allow them to be defeated. Why? On account of their worship of other gods and idols, their outright rebellion, and their mistreatment of the poor. God tells the people in chapter 1, verse 11, that he's had enough of their burnt offerings. Now, if you've been gone for a couple years, you haven't enjoyed anamias or olays, you walk in, the smell hits you, it's fragrant and beautiful. Those fajitas are slapped down in front of you, and the smell is wafting on you, and it's an enjoyable experience. But what happens when you leave and get in the car? That's, that delicious smell of fajitas is still with you. You take a shower and you wake up the next day and it's still there. In verse 13, he tells them to stop bringing meaningless offerings. And as John said last week, we have to be brutally honest with the Bible. And so we find brutal honesty in verse 15 when God says, When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. This is pretty harsh stuff, right? So what's going on here? Well, as you might have noticed, God is more than a little mad. Why? In the Old Testament, sin required sacrifice, but people were abusing the system. A few weeks ago, I saw a video on YouTube of someone walking down the street, and every car on that street had a parking ticket. Now, if it was my 2000 model, model Saturn station wagon that some of you were eyeing in the parking lot, the ticket might be the same value as the car. <laughs> but these weren't Saturn station wagons. They were Ferraris, they were Lamborghinis, Audis, Porsches, and so on. The cost of the parking ticket was relatively meaningless, and so the drivers openly flaunted the laws, and they just paid the fines as if they were the normal parking fee. This is similar to what people are doing in Isaiah's time. They would sin and sin and sin, knowing that all they had to do was to make a small sacrifice. But God had never intended them to make endless sacrifices. 
He just wanted them to obey. He just wants us to obey. And we hear this desire for obedience, not sacrificed, echoed again and again in the Bible. Now, in the context of the people's open rebellion to God, it is therefore understandable why much of this book of Isaiah is doom and gloom. But in this book, we also find some of the most beautiful passages of Scripture. Scripture that we've sung this morning, promises that we will be cleansed from our sin, that we will rise up on eagles' wings, that God will do a new thing, and promises of a future Messiah, one who will be born of a virgin, who will take our sin upon himself. But before we get to our text, I want to point out one more passage from chapter 2. I know John mentioned the situation in Israel and Gaza briefly last week. Amy mentioned it also this morning. But I don't know how much you've talked about it as a church. I will say this. As a Christian living in a Muslim-majority nation, it is a topic of daily conversation. And I point my Muslim and my Christian friends and neighbors to this passage in verse 4. A passage where the nations are finally at peace. Disputes are settled by God alone. And we humans, we take our weapons of war and we reshape them into tools for planting and harvesting. I pray that we see that day in our lifetimes. All right, now with all that context behind us, we'll finally get to the text for today. We'll start in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 until 8. Please follow along. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. May God bless the reading of his word. When I came in February, I was visiting the president of Hartford Seminary, now Hartford International University. I came with a fellow professor from Indonesia. Now in Indonesia, the average male height is five foot four inches. My Indonesian coworker is probably six foot two inches. And as we were waiting to meet the seminary president, my friend said, people consider me tall, 
but this guy is tall, tall. Now, I would consider Matt Weedy tall, tall. But this guy was tall, tall, tall. And I was lucky I was warned because when this man stood up to come to the door, I could see through the translucent door this towering figure of six foot ten coming towards me like something from a horror movie. (laughs) Our God is not simply holy. He is holy, holy, holy. The holiest. And so angelic beings in his presence can do nothing but bear witness to his holiness and his glory. In his presence, creation trembles. Now back when I was your age... I learned an acronym for prayer to give structure to how we should pray. ACTS. A-C-T-S. Now, A stood for adoration. This is what the seraphim are doing and saying God was holy, holy, holy. Next is C for confession. Confronted with God's holiness, all Isaiah can think of doing is confess. Now, Have you ever had an unannounced guest come to your house? You're not expecting company. Maybe you're not wearing the right clothes. Maybe you're not wearing clothes. But there they are on your doorstep wanting to come in. You look around at your house and all the little piles and messes have been building up over over the week are now more readily apparent. You can't but help. You can't help but think. I am a person of an unclean house. If you don't have a house yet, maybe if I said, unlock your phone and hand it to your neighbor. Some of you might be panicking, wondering, what did I last search? Is that picture of that weird mole on my back? Is it in my, uh, my photo album? We would be confronted with the reality of who we are. Now, as Amy shared a few weeks ago, God has seen it all, but in front of a holy God, we cannot help but be stricken with our sinfulness. Thus, Isaiah says, woe to me. I'm ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And a God appeared to us today here in this sanctuary his robe filling this place, the seraphim flying above us, surely we too would say we are people of unclean lips. But not only of unclean lips, of unclean hands, unclean hearts, unclean minds. A few chapters earlier, as we talked about, God said that he had stopped listening to the prayers which came from meaningless offerings. Offerings which lacked in true repentance. But here Isaiah confesses his unrighteousness and what follows. The unclean lips of Isaiah, which much like his countrymen may have cursed God or worshipped others before him, to those unclean lips the seraphim brings a coal and touches, saying, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Forgiveness 
always follows confession. If you are burdened by your guilt today, confess your sins. As the Bible calls us to do, we should confess to one another and pray for one another. Why? So that we might be healed. So we looked at A, adoration, C, confession. I'm going to skip the T and the S for now because they don't fit, and I don't want to steal some Sunday school teacher's thunder someday. Isaiah, he's taken up into this heavenly vision. He sees God. He sees angels. He's crushed by the reality of his sinfulness. He's forgiven. And then God says, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Jesus tells us that there's no greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Friends, Christ died for you. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. When God says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? What is your answer going to be? The prayer we ask you to consider today is one of response, of obedience, of expectation. One author writes, when When he was asked, Moses said, send someone else. When Jonah was asked, he ran away. But when he was asked, Isaiah responded, here am I, send me. Now when you preach somewhere as a guest, they will likely share a verse or a topic that they have in mind. And it was no different than when John emailed me. He shared the verse and the topic, but again, As with any guest preacher, they always are very nice and say, feel free to go in a different direction or choose a different verse. But I'm happy to not be preaching about Abraham this week. Why? Because this passage is near and dear to my heart because how much it has shaped my life. Now, as a young adult, I sat in these very same pews. I knew in my head who God was. I knew in my heart that Christ loved me and he died for me. I went to church, was faithful in, we called it adult, adult Bible fellowship back then, Bible study. But then one day I was asked to go. Where? On a mission trip. The trip was just a couple weeks away, but a couple months after that, I was planning to get married. My fiance at the time and I were, when we were asked, we immediately said no. Why? Because we had to save our money for the wedding. Soon after, we both had a sense that that was the wrong answer, that we had said no far too hastily, and we committed that we'd say yes to the next trip. A few weeks later, we were no longer engaged. And that's where the stolen sermon illustration comes in. Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. (laughs) A couple months after that, I said to God, here am I, send me. I resigned from my job, but in actuality, I took a leave of absence that's now going on 17 years. I came to the staff here at VRBC and said, 
here am I. They found a place for me to volunteer and to explore God's calling. A year after that first no occurred, I still felt like I owed it to God to go. The church wasn't sending a trip to Africa that year, so I joined another group's trip. A few weeks out from the trip, I received a call that I was the only person that signed up for the trip. And so they suggested instead of Africa that I go to Jordan in the Middle East. To do what? To teach English. But with here am I, send me, playing in my head, instead of no, I said yes. I had never taught before. I didn't know anything about Jordan and even less about Islam. Still, I went. We taught English each night at a church recreation center. And the leader said, this is not for the purposes of evangelism. We just want to show love to our community by meeting a need, and that need is English. But these people know they're coming to a church, and so they may be open for conversations. And so if a conversation arises, feel free to follow it. Now, each day before class, me and my fellow teachers would pray that conversations would indeed arise. And each night as we taught out of the blue, one of the students would ask a question about the Bible or Christianity. And for me, it was a powerful time of seeing God at work. And it led me to continue to say, here am I, send me. Earlier this week, a few days ago, I spoke at an Islamic conference in Indonesia. There were hundreds of people in attendance and scholars from around the Middle East, including Jordan. I was the only Christian in the room. On my mind the entire time was that prayer from so many years ago and that of our sermon today, here am I, send me. I didn't end up doing what I do today because one day out of the blue, I answered the call to go and I said, send me. I didn't one day out of the blue say, here am I, send me and get on a boat or a plane to go across the world. Instead, it was a process of saying, here am I, send me to the little things that God wanted me to do. Here in this church, in this community, far long and long before I found my way to the ends of the earth. Now, I can't say praying this prayer, here I am, send me, is always going to be easy. Sometimes you'll face the most difficult challenges in your life, leaving a career, family and friends, possibly sacrificing your health or your reputation. But I can confidently say, wherever you go with God, whether it's across the street or around the world, that is where you are supposed to be. And that is where you will find the hidden riches of this life and the life to come. I close with this. In our front yard in Indonesia, we have a very large mango tree. When we moved into this house two years ago, the maid from across the street and her family would come into our yard and pick our mangoes. It's November, our mangoes are now ripe, 
they're starting to fall. In the middle of the night, you'll hear this loud thud. With that thud, they split open and are quickly swarmed by bugs. This fruit, which can feed a family or be sold at the market, lies rotten on the ground. Why? Because that woman and her family no longer come to pick the mangoes. What a waste of good fruit. In Matthew, Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Friends, we are called to be people of prayer. And that prayer is not only about asking God to change our situation, but that prayer, as here in Isaiah, is a call for us to respond, to commit to God to being the change that we need in this world. Lord, here we are. Send us. I'll be around after service. Some of you may be feeling this call. Maybe the call is to serve Cornerstone next week. Maybe the call is to serve in the valley. Maybe your call is to find a way to serve in missions outside of your comfort zone, outside of your culture, maybe on the other side of the world. And so I invite you to find me, find one of the staff after service to talk about that. But as we close, let us pray. God, teach us to be a people of prayer, a, pre a people who ceaselessly desire to talk to you, a people who desire to know who you are, to adore you, to confess our sins before you, and Lord, a people who respond, who not only want change, but want to be the change. Lord, here we are. Send us. Amen.